Lord Jesus Christ, make yourself known to us in the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. In today's gospel, Matthew chapter 4, we, we have the calling of the first disciples. That is, the first four of the twelve. And this should be understood, this calling of the twelve should be understood as, at one level as the renewal of the twelve tribes of Israel. So that number twelve isn't, isn't arbitrary. Uh, this is the calling of the church, which is herself the renewed Israel. Galatians 3.29, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thus, Christ is not only renewing the call of Abraham, but fulfilling the promises made to Abraham. For Jesus is the seed, right? Jesus is the seed in and through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And even going back further, before Abraham, Jesus is the seed of the woman who treads upon the head of the serpent. The Gospels, then, are not written in a vacuum. The person and work of Jesus is in fulfillment of and in continuity with the so-called Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament, but that's problematic for us as modern people because when we say that something's old, we can mean like outdated or irrelevant. But when you read the Gospels and you read the New Testament, it's the, what we call the Old Testament is being fulfilled and coming to life in and through Jesus Christ. Thus, the calling of the Twelve, and by extension, the calling of the Church, is an echo that big word last week. It's a recapitulation. That is, it's a, it's a recap. It's a renewal of the call of Abraham and Israel and also of the call of Adam and Eve. And we find uh, in Genesis chapter 1, where we find the, call, the creation and the calling of Adam and Eve, We find in Genesis 1 this temple-building narrative. Genesis 1 and following is the story of God making for himself an abode. God made this place, heaven and earth, to be in this place with us. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And when a temple is being completed, you know, we have to talk about this because we don't live in that sort of cultic society in the same way where we're seeing temples built and completed and all those sorts of things. But in the ancient world, when a temple was being completed, the penultimate event is putting into that temple the image of the God so that all who will enter it will know who it is they're supposed to worship, who it is that they're called to worship. So what God does in the creation of the world is that he puts into his temple, the cosmos, this primal pair who bear his image so that they may reflect his nature, his character, and his goodness out into the world so that all of creation, all people would know who it is that they're called to worship so that the borders of Eden would be expanded and that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Now, what on earth does that have to do with the disciples? What does that have to do with our very evangelistic collect? Well, quite a lot. In the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 5, uh, after we have the calling of the first disciples, Jesus is, is making this explicit when he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Israel was called to be the light of the world. The church is called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Why? So that we can narcissistically and self-righteously call attention to ourselves. No, that when people see our good works, when they see uh, the life of the Lord Jesus played out in the life of his mystical body, the church, that they would be brought into the life of God, that they would come to know him and glorify the Father which is in heaven. So that's what's going on. But, but as we know, there's not a straight line in Scripture from Genesis 1 to Matthew chapter 5. There's not, okay, this giving of the vocation to Adam and Eve, and then they keep that vocation, and then they're the light of the world. Well, there's Genesis 3, right? And actually, the fall of man is Genesis 3 through 11, because there's like these reboots, and it, it keeps... It keeps going wrong. We have the flood. We have the Tower of Babel. Our first parents, and we along with them, we failed as our vocation as image bearers. We opted for our own way. We fell into sin and death. But God does not leave us in our plight. But he calls a man, Abram. And he calls his family, to be the means by which he would rescue the earth. And that rescue ultimately comes through he who is both Abram's descendant and his maker, he through whom all things were made, Jesus Christ our Lord. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 8, and I think it really puts together what it means to be human and and what it means to be an image bearer and, and what it means to be the church. Psalm 8 is a psalm that marvels and glories in the human vocation and ultimately in the mystery of the incarnate Christ. And Psalm 8 employs this literary device called an inclusio, which means it begins and it ends in the exact same way, which is this. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. It begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And the psalmist talks about that human beings were crowned with glory and honor, that everything was put uh, under their dominion, about uh, very much recalling uh, the vocation, the calling of Genesis 1. And then it ends, God's name is excellent and majestic in all the earth. So the implication is this, that the Lord's name is made majestic. That God's will is accomplished and that the borders of Eden are expanded. How? Through the faithful rule and stewardship of human beings. And this happens again supremely in and through the seed of Abraham, the seed through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And now the ministry of Christ And his fulfillment of the human vocation continue through us, 
the, his mystical body, the church, who operates in the power of the Holy Spirit, by whom she is indwelt, proclaiming in word and in deed and in sacrament the message of the cross. The message of the cross. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works. The great commission passages in the New Testament are nothing less. I mean, there's certainly much more, but they're nothing less than this repetition of the calls to Adam and Eve, uh, to Abraham and Israel, that we as the church are to expand the borders of the new Eden. That is that we are to be the means by which the kingdom of God comes on earth as in heaven. And we do this through the preaching of the gospel through the proclamation of the crucified and risen one, Jesus of Nazareth. We have to recover as the church our cross-centered, our Christ-centered identity and calling. Moreover, both advancement in the Christian life and the introducing of others to the Christian life, i.e. evangelism, are only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, when we read the scriptures, when we hear the gospel read in our midst, we're seeking the crucified and risen Jesus, for it is he of whom the scriptures speak. And in the most holy sacrament, what are we doing? We're we're coming to the foot of the cross, We're coming to the trunk of the tree of life and we're receiving the benefits of his passion and his death, which we so desperately need. And it is through the preaching of the gospel. And what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's through the preaching of the gospel that people living in the darkness of sin and death can say, we have seen a great light. And the light is Christ. And he shines abroad from atop Golgotha. What does he say in John chapter 12? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. There's a lot of conversation about evangelism and reaching people and a lot of times it's, it's disconnected from the life of the church at the altar. I mean, what we are doing here liturgically in the holy sacrifice of the mass is that we are lifting up the son of man. That's why we, we, 
we face liturgically towards him because we're seeking him. And as he's worshiped, because our, our, our goal, right? We talk about this all the time. What are we here first and foremost to do? It's actually to minister to God. And when we do that for which we were created, when we, when we see God in Christ and, we, and our union with him is deepened, then we, are, we find that satisfaction for which we long because we were created for him. So we're always going back to the crucified and risen Jesus. The church at Corinth wasn't particularly impressed with this. They, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm mystified by this. They, they were not particularly impressed by Paul and his intellectual abilities and, and his rhetoric. But Paul didn't give in to the pressure of wanting to impress his parishioners, if you will. Paul didn't want their faith to rest on flash. He didn't want to, as he says, empty the cross of its power by turning to some other method. For he knew there was no power in anything other than the cross. He wanted their faith to rest on the demonstration of the Spirit's power in and through the preaching of the cross. And as we begin, right, we're still very much in the beginning of this journey together as a church. We need to say with Paul, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we could preach something else, follow someone else, and perhaps grow this organization, but we won't be growing the church of Jesus Christ. We can only do that by following the crucified and risen one and preaching the gospel in word and deed. And yes, uh, in our day, as in Paul's, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what a gift it is that we, that Christ died for us. And that he gives to us in the sacrament, his body and blood. And the benefits of his passion and his death. Because as scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And without his death, which defeated death, we're lost. As the church, as the mystical body of Christ, we have this calling. We have this vocation to reflect the nature and the character and the goodness of God out into the world, to expand the borders of the new Eden, to be the means by which the kingdom of God comes on earth as in heaven. And we can only fulfill this calling by virtue of our union with Christ, by walking in the spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, by whom we are indwelt as the temple of God. And as we are sustained by the word, man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. As we live according to the scriptures, 
Not according to the spirit of this age. We're, we're empowered to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and to reach our own telos, our end, the reason for which we were created, which is to know him. And as we engage in the sacramental life of the church, our union with our Lord is deepened. Jesus Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. As we do this, as we, as we faithfully proclaim Christ crucified in word and in deed, again, we, we, we reach that end for which God made us to see him, to know him, to be partakers of the divine nature that is united with him to know God and to fellowship with one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.